0: And so let's just get it out in the open. I've already had three people ask me which one of my sons got a hold of the fluorescent marker, highlighter, and messed with my nice white sweater this morning. And so um, uh, how many batteries does it take? Let me say uh, a a nice cheery colored uh, vest is more emblematic perhaps of my countenance in the need to kind of counterbalance the gloomy weather that we have this morning. We had a... A couple truckfuls of guys go down to the Johnny Hunt Men's Conference this weekend. And I'm trying to think if there's anybody else in here besides Larry and Joel that went. But we had a really good time. Um, there's just something special about having some time away to um, enjoy fellowship with other men. I think Joel and I solved half of the world's problems on the way down, and we solved the other half on the way back. And uh, it was just great to spend some time with some college-age young men, <coughs> just asking questions about... What life is like when you get a little bit older and what's life like when you get married and have kids. It was a wonderful time. And so um, if I can turn the sweater down a little bit this morning and not be a distraction for you, I'll try to do that this morning. We, uh, we come to the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, his whole idea is how do you learn how to, how to be wise? How do you live a life of wisdom? And it's not till we get to the very end Last half of the last chapter that we come to a sermon that I've titled "How to Be Wise," and unless your name happens to be Denny, who he has already he has already offered, if you need private tutoring on how to be wise, um, for nineteen ninety five and a, a nice pair of steak knives, he will be really glad to uh, help you out. <clears throat> it's kind of appropriate that Solomon makes you get to the very end before he he gives the how-to sermon. You have to go through life to get it. It's not available up front for a discount. You have to experience the ups and downs of life. You have to experience the joys and sorrows. And when we get to Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 through 14, he wraps up his beautiful teaching in the book of Ecclesiastes with a beautiful bow. You buy your wife a nice present for Christmas. You want it to look good, wrapped up. You don't just put it in a brown paper bag. A beautiful gift deserves beautiful wrapping. A beautiful message deserves a beautiful conclusion. <clears throat> and that's exactly what, uh, what Solomon uh, does here in these last few verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, four points that we will look at here this morning that I think are chalked full, overflowingly full of wisdom. And here's the first point beginning in verse 9. He says this: <clears throat> that the wise the wise delight in their teachers and their teaching. The wise delight in their teachers and in their teaching. Look at what verses 9 and 10 say. In addition to the teacher, uh, referring to Solomon, Being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and to write words of truth accurately. This is most likely an editorial comment. It's possible. Uh, Jesus referred to himself in the third person the son of man, you know, will be betrayed into the hands. He didn't say, I'm going to be betrayed. It's possible that Solomon is referring to himself in the third person. You know, the teacher, he was a wise man and he, he taught wisdom. It's probably more likely that under the Holy Spirit's uh, inspiration that this is an editor kind of putting, a, putting, a, putting a, a period at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, referring back to who Solomon was and the effect that he had on the people of Israel. And here's what happens. Whoever it is, whether it's Solomon in the third person or an editor uh, providing a summary of Solomon's teaching, this person is praising the teacher's person and work. You see what it said? He was a wise man. He, he was a wise man. Isn't there a measure uh, that, that by which you can only really say that once they're gone? I mean, there's always a chance for you to shipwreck right before you get to the finish line. So I think Solomon is passed off the scene, and here's a man finishing co- this collection of works of Solomon's saying, and he says, you know what? Solomon was a wise man, <clears throat> and it praises his work. He was wise, and what was his work? His work was to teach, teach knowledge, to teach knowledge. A couple of weeks ago, the book of Ecclesiastes encouraged us to work hard, and it wasn't kind of a work hard, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It was work hard so that not only do you have enough for yourself, but you have enough to share. And what's, what's beautiful here is that Solomon does that exact same thing. Solomon has a storehouse of wisdom that he does not hoard for himself. He realizes that God has given him wisdom to share with the less fortunate, to not hoard his wisdom, but to share it with others. And here's a tough truth that I think every parent uh, comes to understand. You'll see here in verse uh, 9, it says that he constantly taught the people knowledge. <coughs> Why did he teach people knowledge? Well, the same reason every parent and grandparent teaches their kid or grandkid knowledge. You can't teach them wisdom, right? You can't teach wisdom. All you can do is teach knowledge and hope that they put it into practice. Can you make them? How many of you have given your kids advice that went unheeded? Am I the only one? You can't give them wisdom. You can give them knowledge that leads to wisdom, but if they don't want to appropriate that knowledge for themselves, there's a problem. So it says he taught them knowledge, and then he wants to see what his students are going to do with it. Isn't that what the whole process of parenting is? Oh, you, try to, you try to steer them right, and then as they get more freedom and more responsibility, you hope that they use it well. <laughs> I, I can appreciate what this editor is saying about Solomon, because I feel like he's, he's talking about Solomon's role as a, as a proclaimer, as an exhorter, as a person who is preaching the truth of God's word. It says that the teacher was diligent in study. He was very careful in how he evaluated things. He sought to be skillful in arrangement, and he sought to be artistic in delivery. Uh, that is the challenge. You know, uh, Johnny Hunt referred to it this way. He said, um, preaching is like having a baby on Sunday and finding out that you're pregnant again on Monday. Sunday comes with amazing regularity, and yet there's always study, and evaluation, and arrangement, and artistry, and you think about how, how Solomon has done this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, for everything, there is a season. And how's the chorus go? Turn, turn, turn. <laughs> so beautiful that it became a, a perennial classic song, um... There's poetry in there that makes Ecclesiastes beautiful. Last week, Solomon created this whole analogy about old age. And while we may not like the analogy that he, he used, isn't it accurate? The guardians start to tremble, and the, the, the grinders lose their grinding ability, and the windows get dim, and, and life is, is gone quick. And he uses picturesque language. <clears throat> it's not that life is futile As much as life is just quick, it's like a vapor. Life is a vapor. By the time you're old enough to appreciate it, it's moving so fast that you're just holding on, you know. Uh, When you're a kid, you don't really appreciate life. You just kind of, you're carefree. And by the time you get old enough to appreciate it, it seems like the years go by in weeks. The months just flash right by. And so he uses all of this, everything in his repertoire, study, Um, evaluation, arrangement, artistry, to to communicate truth. And that reminds me of of three elements of good communication. You know, whether it's the State of the Union Address, um, uh, a a webinar, or the proclamation of God's Word. The elements of good communication have always been, uh, from the time of um, Aristotle, broken down into three components. Now, this is kind of a side note, but but, uh, (coughs) Aristotle said, Three components. The first is which there has to be conviction. Like if somebody's talking about something that they don't have conviction about, are you going to listen? You know, if somebody got up and just read the phone book, here's the listing under the A's. It doesn't matter how animated they get. There's just no conviction. He calls that pathos. You have to have 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 passion. And I'll just be real honest. (laughs) We've all got better things to do than for someone to bore us with the Bible. I think it's a sin to make the Bible boring. And I pray that God removes me from a teaching position if I ever lose a passion for God, His gospel, and His word. So conviction, passion has to be an important component. And number two, content. What Aristotle called logos, words, there has to be something to, to go into your mind. You'll remember, Jesus said, you're to love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not multiple choice. You're to do all of that. So you're supposed to love them with your heart, but you're supposed to love them with your mind. And there has to be content to encourage you to evaluate your life to go. All right, here's what the Bible says. This is how I'm living. What do I need to do? What, what's, the, what's the change? There has to be content. Logos. Finally, on the part of the communicator, there has to be character, what he called ethos. If this guy doesn't live what he's passionate about and what he's talking about content-wise, if he's not living it out, there's a word that we have for that. What is it? Hypocrisy. You don't listen. His conviction may be right and his content may be awesome, but if he doesn't have character, <clears throat> you don't listen to him. Now, any man that's been married for more than three months knows it is not just a matter of what you say, but how you say it. I think it's a Geico commercial. And if there is a character trait that you know about Abraham Lincoln, what was it? What was Abraham Lincoln known for in his character? Honest Abe! And there's a story in which um, Abraham Lincoln's wife, you see Abraham Lincoln sitting at a a desk, and his wife's in the background kind of blurred out, And she basically asks him, Honey, does this dress make my backside look a little bigger? And he goes to answer and goes... (laughs) They cut away to the next scene and you see his wife through the window using a broom to beat him over the head. It is not just what you say, it's how you say it. And here's why this is so important for Solomon. Solomon is not looking for a pay increase. Solomon is not looking to be written down in the who's who among ancient Near Eastern people. Solomon's goal is for people to get wisdom. And if he has to live it, if he has to be passionate about it, if he has to study hard to get good content, he is going to do whatever he needs to do for people to get the message. If it's up to him, everybody that listens to him is going to get wisdom. You and I both know it's not just up to him. You can transmit from your antenna whatever message you want to broadcast, but if the receiver's not willing to pick it up, there's no communication that's happened. And Solomon says, as far as it be dependent upon me, I want my communication to have character. I want it to have passion. I want it to have content so that the people who listen can get wisdom. I think sometimes in our churches we're so... Appropriately so, concerned about error, but we're not equally concerned about dullness. Found people that sit in Sunday school classes, not here, but I've heard these stories. They sit in Sunday school classes for 40 years, and they go, all right, after 40 years, what have you learned? Um, not much. But well, why do you do it? Because I'm supposed to. That's what good Christians do. And so, listen, if you have the privilege of teaching the Bible, I don't care if it's with three-year-olds or 80-year-olds. Be concerned about error, but be concerned about dullness. Why would you bore people with the Bible's most exciting book in the world? It, it, it changes lives. You know, the, the disciples are leaving Jesus. Jesus <clears throat> looks at his, the 12 and he says, are you guys going to leave too? Remember what the answer was? Who else has words of eternal life? Where are we going to go? Don't. Make the Bible boring. Learn to delight in your teachers and in their teaching. And if you have a teacher who doesn't bore you, small group leader, Sunday school leader, thank God for them and let them know it as well. Number two, verse 11, says this. Here's the point. The wise appreciate wisdom's ability both to sting And to stabilize. Wisdom has an ability to sting and to stabilize. Listen to verse 11. The sayings of the wise are like goads, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given ultimately by one shepherd. I love the word picture here goads and nails. You know what a goad is? A goad is a sharp stick. Now, we know, you know, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Uh, thy goad doesn't. The goad is not an instrument of comfortability. The goad is something that a shepherd would use if a, if a, if a sheep is getting ornery. You use it, kind of put them in line. Hey, get back in line. And it's a, not a spear, but it's a sharp-tipped stick. You start to go off the path, he goads you to get you back where you want to go. Here's a little-known historical fact, Okay. Um, I don't see, our ushers might be back there, but if you are an usher, this is going back about 200 years in American history, um, ushers were also known as the goadmasters at church. And so they'd have a long stick with a point on one end and a feather on the other. And if you fell asleep in the worship service, you'd get two tickles with a feather on the back of your neck to kind of say, hey, all right, buddy, we're trying to help you out. If the two feathers didn't work, guess which end of the stick you got next time? <laughs> right in the back of the neck, so um, we'll have a business meeting right after this is done, and we'll we'll see if that's something we want to add to our ushers ministry the the ministry of the goad, because you know what? you need to listen to god 's word don't you? Sometimes you need stung just a little bit to pay attention to what you need to pay attention to there are people there are people today who 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 just forgive the Speaking, it don't give a rip about church today. And they're going to spend more on catering tonight than than people who go to church give to their church. There's people who won't, won't, won't think one whit about dropping $500 tonight who would never consider making a gift to God's church. They need a goad. Because tickling them ain't going to help them to do the right thing. So it says that sometimes God uses his word to poke us where we need to be poked. To get us back in the right direction. To to prod the sluggish or the wandering. But it says it also is like firmly embedded nails that keep you from wiggling. And the idea kind of here, the analogy, is like tent pegs. If you've ever gone camping, you need the tent pegs. Especially if it's windy. It's windy. You put those tent pegs down into the ground and your tent can survive a windy night. And he says, that's how wise words work. Sometimes they sting. Sometimes they stabilize. And aren't you glad for both ends of that equation? Aren't you glad when God's word stings you? Aren't you glad when God's word stabilizes you? So here's the deal. The wisdom of Scripture only, only works if you listen to it. The wisdom of Scripture only works if you learn for it. So in your margins, five questions to ask when you spend time in God's Word. Very simple. Five questions. Number one, what do I learn about God? What's this passage teaching me about God? The God question. What do I learn? What do I know? What do I find out about God? Number two, what do I learn about man? What does the Bible say about mankind? God... Usually, what we learn about God in the Bible, really good. Usually, what we learn about man in the Bible, really bad. Number three, what does God want me to learn? How many of you have, don't raise your hand, but don't lie in church? How many of you have gone through a Bible reading plan where you have checked off your Bible reading for the day and you have no clue what you just read? What does God want me to learn? What does he want me to learn? Number four, what does God want me to do? Number five, how does this point me to Jesus? Five questions. What do I learn about God? What do I learn about man? What does God want me to learn? What does God want me to do? How does this point me to Jesus? These are ways that the scripture is used to sting and to stabilize. Number three, the wise are careful with God's commands. We find three commands in this passage. Uh, And we begin in verse 12. Here's what the scriptures say. Uh, Number one, the point that he makes is, don't try to be too wise. Oh, pursue wisdom. Don't try to be too wise. Here's what he says in verse 12. But beyond these, my son, the the words that sting and stabilize, the goads and the, uh, the and the, um, the nails, all given from one shepherd, beyond these... My son, be warned. That's the command. Warning! There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. Don't try to be too wise. You get on this wisdom pathway, and you know what you realize? The pursuit of knowledge is never-ending. Do you know you could stay enrolled in, in class until the day you die and not learn it all? Now that's frustrating for some of you because you think you already do know it all. Um, But you could take a class every day, not learn it all. So you can read other books. Here's the question, friends. Where will you find better answers than the words of Scripture? It's the question that the disciples asked. Where will we go? Who else has words of eternal life? The Bible is the only book that you need to be able to walk in wisdom. You don't need anything else. Well, you do need something else. It's not more study. It's better obedience. How many of you put everything into practice that you know from the Bible? You don't need more study. You need better obedience. And the challenge today, when you walk into any bookstore, is that you have a choice. You know what your choice is? Self-help? Or how did it refer to these teachings that are goads and nails, they all come from one shepherd. They come from God. What are you going to choose? Self-help? Or the one shepherd? Only one offers words that are infinite, absolute, and perfect. In verse 13, we start to see uh, a conclusion. He he says something along the fact, when, when everything has been heard, So he's wrapping up the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 12, verse 13, he's one verse from the end, and he says, when all has been heard, he's summarizing um, the message of Ecclesiastes, when you've heard the whole book. Some people, when we talk about the book of Ecclesiastes, see it as a very dark book. It talks about the limits of wisdom. There are things you don't know. There are things outside of your control. Time is passing. Life is quick. There is futility in pursuing pleasure. Pleasure's not the ultimate answer. There is a transitoriness of life. Everything alive will be consumed by death. And people listen to this message and they go, oh my goodness, this book sounds like abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. And that's not it at all. It is search for hope in the right place and you will find it. So Ecclesiastes tries to deal very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <clears throat> very realistically with, with life. And you know what? Life has some high highs and it also has some low lows. There are some ways in which I think that this is a faithful way to describe it. There are some ways that Ecclesiastes has some low notes in its song that sound a little bit depressing. Is that okay to say about the Scriptures? Yes, because its purpose is it, it is designed to depress you into dependence upon God. If you're full of yourself, it's saying, be full of yourself, just be ready, because pride comes before a fall. It is designed to depress us into dependence upon God, because if you try to make sense of life on your own, that is like trying to catch a hurricane in a butterfly net. You are never going to do it. You can work really hard and exhaust yourself, but you will have nothing to show for it. So in verse 13, he gives a double command. He gives a double command, and it has to do with fearing God and keeping his command. Listen to what it says in verse 13. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands. The bottom line of the book of Ecclesiastes, the end game, you know, the sim the, quanon, the, the, the stuff, is that if you are going to have the attitude of fear or reverence for God, the attitude of fear and reverence for God requires the action of obedience. The attitude of reverence Requires the action of obedience. Guys, I got to hit that again. The attitude of reverence requires the action of obedience. The attitude of fearing the Lord requires the action of obedience. Oh, I fear God. Well, that's strange. You haven't been to church in 30 years. Good job fearing God. Oh, you know, the Bible says that Christians serve one another in love. You haven't been in church in 30 years. Good job fearing God. The Bible says that Christians will be generous because they acknowledge that God is the author, uh, the giver of everything that they have. You've never given anything of your time or your resources to God. Good job fearing God. And it's only in America that we allow people (coughs) to call themselves Christians and be on the rolls of our church that have no action of obedience? Why in the world would we hate people so much to make them think that they're in good standing with the God that they say they fear when they do not obey Him? Friends, are we going to follow our traditions or are we going to follow God's Word? Because the most loving thing we can say to them is what Solomon says here. The attitude of fear requires the action of obedience. If you fear God, you will obey Him. Fear and obey. That is not freedom and independence. That's what Americans want. Freedom and independence. And what the scriptures offer them is fear and obedience. And fearing God is not shriveling down at how big He is and how small we are. It is putting God in His proper place. What happens when we put God in His proper place? Well, we find out where our proper place is too. God is God. We are not. We submit to Him. We depend upon Him. We respect Him. We love Him. And we recognize there's a gap between where He is in His proper place and where we are in ours. He concludes in the end of verse 13 and verse 14 with his his fourth kind of principle for us when it comes to living wisely. And it's that the wise are motivated by joy and by judgment. By joy and by judgment. Listen to what it says. The very end of verse 13 uh, says this. I'll read all of 13. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep His commands. Because for, this is for all humanity. And then he goes on. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Let's start with the the end of verse 13. This is for humanity. Joy is found as a motivator at the end of 13. He said, fearing God and keeping His commands is the purpose of, the duty of all mankind. God, this is, this is an incredible thing to re- recognize. God wants you to delight in life. All throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, enjoy the life of your youth. Have fun. It, 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 your life is, is quick, so enjoy it while you've got it. Don't, don't disobey God, but enjoy the life that he has given you. And here's the problem. If you try to enjoy the things of life directly, so I want things, and happiness, and I want there to be a direct line from A to B, you'll never be happy. How much stuff do you have to have to be happy? How many things do you need to work out the way you want them to work out to be happy? God's not designed stuff to make you happy. But if instead you recognize everything as a gift from Him and you enjoy your stuff through Him, there's joy. Fearing God Keeping his commands. When we do that, we recognize our purpose. Our purpose is not materialism. Our purpose is a relationship with our creator and our redeemer. God commands us to have a holy happiness. Be happy. Just don't do it through stuff. Do it through God. What a simple fix. We are not constrained. If you look at some Christians and you see the sour look on their face you would think that we are constrained to a mundane march through a cursed world. Now, we're, it's a cursed world, right? Absolutely. But the Bible says that there is joy for the journey. Life under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says, is dreadful. But life under the sun, directed by the Son of God, it can lead to eternal significance. Because the things that we do every day matter when they're done for the glory of God. You remember 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That makes everything we do significant. We're reminded by the words of St. Augustine who said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. There will be no rest until you fear God and keep his commands. And that's the way that it should be. We should never pray for God's blessings upon those who are disobedient. Because if they keep marching in that direction, it may lead to their perishing. No, we want them to experience restlessness until they have come to bow before the Lord to fear Him and to obey Him. So our motivation is joy. We get our satisfaction from God most ultimately, and we enjoy the things that He has given. We don't try to go from stuff to joy. We can't do that. Stuff's not made to... Um, bring us joy. And then judgment is found in verse 14. And it's not a generic judgment. What's it say? It says, God will bring every action, everything you've ever done. So however you wave at people when they cut you off in traffic, whether it's with a fist or five fingers or just one, God sees it, every act. Your wife might not see it. Your kids might not see it. I might not see it. God sees it, and it says every hidden thing. Some translations say, what are hidden things? Every thought. Every action. Every thought. Now listen, every action is enough judgment for me, okay? Like just the stuff that I've done outwardly is enough for me to be judged. But it's even the secret things. We're reminded from uh, Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 12. He says this, I tell you that on the day of judgment... People will have to give an account for every careless word they speak for by your words you will be acquitted and your, by your words you will be condemned. Here's what's great. This last verse, verse 14, about judgment. God will bring every act to judgment including every hidden thing, whether good or evil, can be a sentence of condemnation for you or a gracious invitation. Christians do not obey out of dread for God's judgment. We don't. Why? Because we know that in the cross, through Christ's work, God's judgment has been dealt with for us. We don't obey out of fear of judgment. Joy is a much better motivator. Rather, we want to be judged faithful. We want to demonstrate our gratitude for His graciousness to us. So we fear judgment, but the judgment that we fear is not whether we'll be accepted. God has already told us, in Christ we are accepted. We want to be judged as faithful with what God has entrusted to us. So we are motivated by joy and by judgment. We know that He's forgiven us and after all that He has done for us in the gospel, we say, we love Him. How's the kid's song go? Because He first loved us. That's what wisdom is. Loving God by fearing him and keeping his commands. We remember the words of Jesus in John 14, where Jesus himself said this, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If we keep his commands, what will we do? We won't be too wise. We're not going to look It's self-help books to teach us how to live for God. We will rightly prioritize God's word. We won't claim an attitude that isn't backed up by appropriate action. We won't be hypocrites. If we say that we fear God, we'll live like it. Our attitude will be backed up by our obedience. What else will we do if we're going to prove our love for him by keeping his commands? It means that we will trust him and we will obey him through the ups and downs of life. Because that is what a life of wisdom is all about. Trusting God, fearing Him, keeping His commands when the sun is out and when it's overcast. When things are good and you're losing weight and the doctor's happy with you, and when the report from the doctor is not so good, we know that God is sovereignly in control of all things. We will trust Him and obey Him, and by so doing, prove our love for our Savior. Father, please help us to not just appreciate wisdom, but to desire it more than silver or gold, to recognize that in Christ you have given us all the wisdom that we need, because you, through your Son and His work on the cross, tell us everything that we need to know about God, everything we need to know about ourselves, what it is you want us to learn what it is you want us to do and how you want us to build our lives focused, grounded and built upon who Jesus is. Father, forgive us for the many ways in which we don't represent you well and help us on this day, February 4th, 2018, to commit that tomorrow we will live more wisely than we have today. We will trust you and obey you. We will not ever curse or turn away from you. We will trust you through everything and we'll live a life of wisdom, not so that people pat us on the back and say good things about us on our tombstone, but that we might glorify God. In Jesus' name we pray.